coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on the 26th of November, 2023. Where's God in my pain? We have a special treat today. Special speaker, Jake Moskus, would you come up? He's been here before, so let's all greet him well. Well, thank you for having me back. I think I preached uh, last May um, here, and so um, excited to be back and get to share God's word with you. And so the verses I'll be preaching on this morning are uh, Romans 8, 26 through 29. So if you want to turn there in preparation, that'd be wonderful. The title of the sermon this morning is, Where is God in my pain? Famously, this advice has been given to pastors. It goes like this. Preach to the suffering, and you will never lack a congregation. There is a broken heart in every pew. And that's good advice, not maybe if the motivation is job security, but because broken-hearted people have such a deep need to be ministered to. And suffering compels us to examine our theology in, in ways that nothing else really can. And though we might have thought that we had all the right answers, there is a realness or even an amount of rawness in our relationship with God when we endure suffering. We find ourselves saying things to him and questioning him in ways that we might not ever do during times of blessing. We say things like, well, how could you allow this? Why didn't you stop it? Is this happening to me because you're angry with me? Why aren't you doing anything about this? Have you forgotten me? Where are you, God? If you've ever asked these sorts of questions, you're in pretty good company. Listen to how David questioned God in Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. He said, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul Having sorrow in my heart daily, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? In Psalm 74, verse 1, Asaph asked, O oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Habakkuk demanded similar answers in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2. He said, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. No. All who wrestle with the afflictions in this life find themselves wrestling with God. You could say that all sufferers are theologians. And where there is affliction and heartache, that is where our theology is put to the test. Does our theology allow for us, God's children, to experience extreme and intense suffering in this life. And here's the reality of the matter. It had better because Scripture doesn't speak about the possibility of hardship and suffering. It speaks of the certainty of it. James 1, verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy if you fall into various trials. It says when you fall into various trials. John 16 33, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. 
2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So my goal this morning is to answer the question, where is God in my pain? And I can think of no better verses to preach that from than Romans 8.26-29. through 29. Now, if we take these verses in isolation, it's not immediately clear that suffering and affliction is part of the immediate context, but I want you to look with me at some of the preceding verses. Look at Romans 8.17. It speaks of God's children suffering with Christ. Romans 8.18 speaks of the sufferings of this present time. Romans 8.22 describes creation itself as if it were human groaning and laboring in birth pangs. Romans 8.23 describes how we groan inwardly as we wait for the redemption of our fallen bodies. Now, without context, look with me at verse 26. It says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And that leads me to the first lesson, if you grab one of the handouts up front. The first lesson is, in our suffering, lesson one, the Holy Spirit is perfecting our prayers. In our suffering, the Holy Spirit is perfecting our prayers. There's an underlying accusation in that question, that gut-level question, where is God in my pain? And the accusation is that I've been abandoned. God must not care about the situation I'm in. He's forgotten me. He does, he's not concerned with how much I'm hurting or even that he's unfaithful. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Look at the beginning of verse 26. The Spirit helps. Are you grieved about what has befallen you? The, the Holy Spirit is grieved with you. Are you in pain? Look, the Holy Spirit is groaning with you. He's groaning for you. His attention isn't elsewhere. He is with you. And further, he helps in an area where we need help, especially when we're suffering. He's making up for one of our weaknesses. The verse says, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Now, knowing that we need prayer and knowing what to pray for, those are two different things. We might pray for the wrong things because we're not omniscient. I mean, how many times have you prayed for something, convinced it was the right thing, and then some new piece of information becomes available and you almost wish you could go back and take those previous prayers back? We can be torn between two bad options, not knowing which to choose. And sometimes we may think we know what to pray for, but we just struggle to articulate it well. Look at the rest of verse 26. It says, But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Is there any greater encouragement when it comes to the subject of prayer? God knows this is a weakness that we have, and, and look, he's overcome it. He doesn't leave us helpless and ineffective and floundering in the midst of our perplexity and heartache. He comes to our aid. He supplies what we are lacking. Verse 26 and 27 both say that he, make, he makes intercession for us, and it's, it's as if the Holy Spirit is intercepting our prayers before they make it to the throne, and he's perfecting them in at least three ways. First, in verse 26, it says that he intercedes for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. I mean, far from being detached and uncaring, 
The Holy Spirit takes our groans and makes them his own. Because we are burdened, he is burdened. And he brings our prayers to the Father's throne with a far more greater intensity and power than we could ever manage. And second, even if we think we know what to pray for, we couldn't pray like this. This is inter-Trinitarian communication that we can't even grasp or fathom since it, it, it's impossible, it, since the, 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 the communication it cannot be uttered. So this is not something that we could duplicate. And we can be certain that what is communicated will be accurate and understood, even if we couldn't begin to articulate it on our own. The third way, for the third way that the Spirit improves our prayers, look at verse 27 with me. It says, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. He's making intercession for us, not according to our finite human grasp on the situation, but according to the will of God. You know, even if we think that we know what to pray for, we cannot know if it aligns with God's purposes. Let me repeat that. Even if we think we know what the right thing to pray for is, we cannot know if it aligns with God's purposes. We often pray for healing or success in our endeavors or relationships to be restored, and those are good things, and we may want them, but we cannot know if those things align with God's purposes. There's a big difference between what we want and what we need. And every parent knows that. My children would love to eat ice cream for every meal. But as parents, we know they need nutritious meals. My children would probably love to sit in front of a screen all day, but we know they need to apply themselves to their studies. They need to develop a strong work ethic. We don't give our children everything that they want, and neither does God give his children everything they want. When my children are tend to complain, or if they start complaining about their chores or something like that, we don't take the chores away and give the child what they want. We probably, if, I, if I'm the one addressing that situation, I'm probably going to give them more chores so that they can be stretched to handle the small amount of chores that we do give them. We call this building character. Uh, I think dads tend to understand this um, very well. We understand Inwardly, I think that a great deal of development occurs uniquely in suffering. <laughs> we seem to understand these things when it comes to our own children, but we fail to understand how this applies to us as God's children. I coach the sport of wrestling, which is a sport that you don't really last very long in unless you can embrace the pain and agony that comes along with it. And as a coach, it's my job this is going to sound odd, but it's my job to make children suffer in practice. <laughs> I'm constantly pushing them things to do things that their bodies can't do comfortably because it's in that pain that the human body develops and, and growth and development occurs. I do this, you know, not, I do this ostensibly to help them become better at wrestling, but I know that they're developing mentally and emotionally in ways that's going to help them become better fathers and husbands down the road. You know, they may come to practice, they might beseech me, like, let us play games, coach, let us, let us play, let us horse around. But 
I know that they need to work out, they need to drill, they need to wrestle live matches, they need to do hard things if I'm gonna help them become better wrestlers. They need it even if it's gonna make them exhausted, even if they're gonna be sore the next day, even if they're getting frustrated and, and, and they, they keep losing, even if they wanna quit. This is what they need if they're gonna become better wrestlers. In the same way, God knows what we really need, and the Spirit is making intercession for us according to His will. This is the very reason we have verses like Romans 5.3 that says, We glory in tribulations, knowing that the tribulation produces perseverance. Or James 1, verses 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. One of my fears in preaching this message is that I might come across as cavalier or insensitive to someone who's experiencing severe suffering. And I kind of went back and forth about whether I should share some of the ways that I've suffered in this life to sort of establish some amount of credibility, but it's not really my credibility that matters. The credibility is coming from the Word of God. And over this last year, I've stepped into the role as an elder in my church, and I've learned about many, you know, uniquely as an elder, I've learned about many families at our church that are suffering, they're enduring real suffering and heartache. And if that's you, I just hope that you can see the love and the engagement and the burden that the Holy Spirit has for the brokenhearted. <clears throat> and beyond these things, I want you to see um, that God is sovereign even over our prayers. The Holy Spirit is perfecting, even changing our prayers to align with the will of God because we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And because God has purposes in our suffering that we can't know. In that way, when we pray for healing or for an end of financial struggle or for reconciliation, and the answer is no, that is actually a yes. It's a yes to the Holy Spirit who is interceding for you according to the will of God. According to these verses, we can trust that even when the answer appears to be no, God is at work to accomplish his will in our lives. Now, I want you to notice that Paul considers himself weak in this area of prayer also. He says, we do not know what to pray for. Or he says, we do not know what we should pray for. He's including himself. And that's an encouraging thought, isn't it? This isn't something that we need to necessarily feel bad about. This is part of the human condition. In fact, Paul recounts a time when he prayed earnestly three times. And the, the answer from God was no. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9 says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. As troubling as it might be, this is what we want, isn't it? I mean, we want God's will to be done, not ours. I mean, which of us would thwart God's will for our lives and 
and seek for hours to be done. No, as Christians, we want to pray like Christ prayed in the garden, asking for the will of the Father to be done, even if it means entering into a season of intense suffering. Now, that's all well and good when you're studying theology. And declaring our desire for God's will is easy when you're financially stable and healthy and happy, but what about when things aren't going well? What about when you lose your job unexpectedly? Or what about when one of your children is rebelling in a terrible way that's tearing your family apart? Or, or just to think of like the worst possible scenario, what about if you discover your, your spouse was unfaithful? Or you're in front of a doctor and he says, it's cancer. God's sovereignty can be troubling to consider when you're experiencing severe suffering. People who go through severe trials, they often want to turn the tables on God and put him on trial. And that's what Job wanted to do. Listen to Job 23, verses 2 and 4. Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. That I might come to his seat, I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. And perhaps you've said similarly when you're going through a trial. I know I have. When everything is going wrong, it feels like God is against you, that he's punishing you. It can feel like he's angry with you and distant from you. And for that reason, a lesson about the Holy Spirit changing our prayers not according to our will but according to God's will may not be entirely comforting to you and that is why I believe verse 28 comes next look at verse 28 with me and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose and many of you probably have this verse memorized. It's one of my favorite verses because when storms come, this is a verse that offers us great hope. It's an anchor to cling to. And God is not malicious when he sends you pain. He is working for your good. And though we cannot trust all the things that seem to be going wrong, we can trust the one who is in control of all things. And that brings me to lesson two on your handouts. In our suffering, lesson two, the Father is working for our good. In our suffering, the Father is working for our good. We don't struggle to see how God uses good or even neutral things for our good. No, it's the hard things. It's the tragedies. It's the disasters, the temptations, the diseases, the betrayals, the sins that we struggle to see working for our benefit and our good. And perhaps you st struggle to believe verse 28. You might be asking yourself, well, how is it that something terrible can work for my good? How is it that God can use wickedness and evil and suffering for my good? Well, the Bible provides us an amazing example of just that. There was a... Once a boy who was despised by his brothers, 
They hated him because their father loved this boy more than his other children, and their bro his brothers were deeply jealous of him. And to make matters worse, this boy was given prophetic dreams that when interpreted meant that his family, his brothers, indeed his, his father, would bow down to him. And given the circumstances, it might have been wise for this boy to keep those dreams to himself, but he told his brothers all about them. Now, who am I talking about? Joseph. Joseph. Now, think about the elements at play in the story so far. What are the... What are the the, the negative or bad or evil things present in the story. You have Jacob's favoritism, and you have his brother's jealousy and hatred fueled by Joseph's prophetic dreams. Listen to Genesis 37, verse 5. It says, Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. After these events... Joseph's brothers were tending their father's flock some distance away from their home, and Jacob sent Joseph to check on them. And when the brothers saw Joseph approaching, they immediately conspired to kill him and throw his body into a pit. Only the intervention of the oldest of the 12 brothers, Reuben, stopped them from killing him outright. So they decided to throw him alive into the pit, I suppose, to die of natural causes. Eventually, the brothers see a company of Ishmaelites bearing goods to sell in Egypt, and greed takes over, and they decide, well, instead of killing him, we're going to sell him as a slave to these traveling merchants. And to cover up what they did, they took Joseph's coat of many colors, and they dipped it in the blood of a goat so that they could tell their father he was slain by a wild beast. And we're familiar with the rest of the story, how Joseph was again sold to an Egyptian, an important man named Potiphar. And God blessed Joseph greatly so that whatever he set his hand to prospered, and he found great favor with Potiphar such that he was raised up to oversee his entire house. And that time of blessing would be short-lived because evil was about to again be committed against Joseph. Potiphar's wife began to cast longing eyes at him, and she attempted multiple times to commit adultery with him, but he refused. And eventually she catches him by the coat, insisting that he lie with her, and he fled from her presence, leaving the garment behind. Now, angry at being spurned, she accused Joseph of what she herself was guilty of, and Joseph finds himself falsely imprisoned. Now put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a moment. Imagine his confusion and what his prayers might have sounded like. You know, he, he'd been betrayed by his own family and sold into slavery, but perhaps those old wounds had begun to mend as he started this new life in Potiphar's house and even enjoyed some success and favor. But look, he's lost it all again. He's been jailed for something he didn't do. Do you think Joseph might have cried out to God saying, why have you allowed this to happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? How long will you turn your back on me? The story goes on. Similar to his time in Potiphar's home, he, he found great favor with the keeper of the prison and was raised up to manage all of the prison's operations. And eventually it came to pass that Pharaoh's chief butler and chief baker found themselves imprisoned after angering Pharaoh. And God sent each of these men prophetic dreams. Now, 
The chief baker's dream meant that he would lie, or that he would be killed by Pharaoh in three days, but the chief butler, his dream meant that he would be restored in three days. And Joseph pled with the butler, saying, Remember me when you're released. Speak to Pharaoh about me, since I'm an innocent man. But the butler forgot Joseph. And he didn't just forget Joseph for a couple days or a couple weeks or a couple months. He forgot him for two years. It wasn't until God sent Pharaoh his own prophetic dreams that greatly troubled him that the butler finally remembered Joseph. And at that point, Joseph is taken out of the prison and he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and they meant that there would be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine in Egypt. And Pharaoh recognized that the spirit of God was with Joseph. So just like with Potiphar, just like when he was in the prison, Pharaoh raised him up to oversee the operations of the country such that he was second in authority only to Pharaoh himself. Now, after the seven years of plenty had come and gone and the seven years of famine were on the, upon the land, who do we find coming to Egypt to buy food? Joseph's brothers. The same brothers who betrayed him. Now, they don't recognize Joseph at first, but eventually Joseph reveals himself to them, and then he says the following, and this is why I spent so much time developing this account. Listen to what he said. Genesis 45, 5 through 8. But now... Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and a ruler throughout the land of Egypt. Three times Joseph insists it wasn't ultimately his brothers who sent him to Egypt. It was God. Genesis 50 verses 19 and 20 says, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And Joseph's brothers chose to commit great evil against him. Potiphar's wife chose to commit great evil against him. The butler forgot him. And perhaps they've been, there have been people in your lives that have committed great evil against you. What you need to take away from this story is that no matter the choices of men, God is sovereign over the circumstances of your life. God is not in heaven wringing his hands because of man's wickedness. It is no problem for him to thwart evil intent and to bring about the good outcome he has determined. To borrow a phrase from my pastor, Pastor Scott LaPierre, he says, everything that happens in your life first passes through the throne room of God. And he's working to accomplish purposes that we cannot see or know, even in the midst of terrible suffering. Joseph said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And there is a mountain of hope in that statement. Do you see how he's basically quoting Romans 8.28 in the Old Testament? 
Have you suffered betrayal? Have you been wronged by people you love? Romans 8.28 gives us the same promise that Joseph recognized was true in his day, that God is working to bring about his good purposes despite the sin, despite the pain, despite the evil intentions of man. I believe this is much easier for us to see after the trial than during it. In fact, it's often the case when you speak to a Christian about a trial they've been through, they'll say something like this. I never want to go through that again, but I would never go back and take it away. We know at some inward level that we've been forever changed by what we experienced, what we went through, what we endured, and that was God's purpose for our suffering. Joseph's account shows us how God worked through horrible circumstances to accomplish good for Joseph, his family, and the people of Egypt to save many people alive. And that is an outward good. And though I suspect that Joseph was greatly changed inwardly and grew in character and godliness because he was so gracious with his brothers. I mean, he showed mountains of spiritual maturity when he dealt with his brothers. I want to now shift from the outward good that God can bring to pass through suffering to the inward good. And to help illustrate that, I want you to think about, I'm going to change uh, subjects here maybe abruptly, but I want you to think about fiction authors and their goals in storytelling. And this will make sense in a moment. Writers know that unless their characters change internally, the plot or the things that happen to the character don't really matter. In fact, when you study storytelling, you'll learn that audiences are not really interested in what happens to a character. What they're interested in is how what happens to that character changes them internally. Characters need to have what is called a development arc, and you should be able to see their need to change and either their progress or their regress toward that change through every beat of the story. And in addition to that, writers know that you'll never stay engaged long enough to see that development arc play out unless you care about the characters. And so to that end, early in the story, they're going to make sure that you, they establish an amount of sympathy and empathy with that character. And that means that character is likely going to suffer. You know, there they were. They were living their normal life carefree until some inciting incident propels them into a story they didn't know was coming. And through every setback and plot twist, you watch them fight against all kinds of external pressures, but the real fight, or the, or the fight that really matters, is taking place internally. It can seem as if the author is intent to crush their characters completely. Now, many stories have a scene near the end, and it's commonly referred to as, the scene is called the dark night of the soul. And this is when everything comes crashing down around the main character. On the surface, their situation appears hopeless because the external threats are insurmountable. But that's because they've been trying to solve their problems the wrong way the whole time. In the most satisfying stories, there is this moment of clarity when the character finally grows or finally recognizes their need to change and they transform into the person that can overcome the obstacles they face. Now that's not so different from you and I. God is the author of our lives and we are the characters in his story. 
Like every good story, the characters are going to experience conflict and trouble and suffering. Why? Because it's through those things that real development and change and growth occurs. And that is the basis for any compelling story. Despite what we may want, you know, a happy life, a healthy body, a blessed marriage, the Father knows what we truly need, and he's at work in the details of our lives to accomplish it. As believers, we too have a character development arc. We were born children of wrath into a sin-cursed, fallen world. We were depraved, alienated from God, unable to remedy our condition. And at some point in our lives, perhaps through suffering, but certainly through internal conflict, God brought us to the end of ourselves, and we recognized our need for a Savior. We recognized our situation was hopeless outside of Jesus Christ, and perhaps painfully, through great conviction and internal torment, he showed each of us our need for Jesus Christ. But your character arc doesn't end at salvation. Look with me at verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Do you see the end that he's determined for believers? He is working in the details of our lives to conform us to the image of his son. This is the ultimate good that he's working all things together to accomplish. And this is by no means an exhaustive list, but consider some of the ways that God might change you internally through suffering. Perhaps he's drawing you closer to himself. Perhaps he's increasing your faith. Perhaps he's equipping you to minister to others who are suffering. Perhaps he's loosening your grip on this world. Or maybe he's removing something precious to you, but something that he knows is ultimately bad for you. Now, thank God that he's predestined us to a good outcome. Thank God that he's working all things together for our good because without his intimate involvement in our suffering it would ultimately be meaningless. It would be arbitrary. I suppose it would just be unlucky or unfortunate. It's not those things because when you take verse 28 and verse 29 together, you have a promise that God is working all of the details of your lives, including suffering and agony and tragedies, ultimately to make you more like Jesus Christ. If we're going to be like Christ, there's no doubt that we will experience some of the same things that he endured, which included a great deal of suffering. Listen to Luke 9.22. Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. He was hated. Isaiah 53, 3 says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. <clears throat> he was betrayed by someone close to him. Matthew 26, verses 14 and 15, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. He suffered 
physically through beatings, scourging, and crucifixion. Isaiah 52, 14 says, So his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. We looked at Joseph's suffering as an example of how God ordained an outward good, and we've also seen how he uses suffering to bring about inward confirmation to the image of Christ. Now let me get you to think about how our suffering produces future heavenly good for the believer. <clears throat> Scripture teaches us that we will suffer with Christ, or you could say we will suffer in some of the same ways that he did. Look at Romans 8, 16, and 17, a few verses below where we're at. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if... Listen to this. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. That brings me to lesson three on your handouts. In our suffering, lesson three, the sun has blazed our path. In our suffering, the sun has blazed our path. Suffering precedes glory. Now, suffering is confusing on its own, trying to wrap our minds around God's involvement and sovereignty over our suffering is even more so, it would be worse if we served a God who could not know or could not sympathize with our human condition. If we served a God who sent us suffering but couldn't know what it was like and had never experienced it himself. But we do not serve a God like that. We serve the God who took on human flesh and suffered with us, and suffered as us at the cross, and suffered for us. He led by example, and he's blazing our path, or he blazed our path. And if you're still having difficulty understanding God's sovereignty to accomplish his purpose in the midst of suffering and the wickedness of sinful man, you need to think carefully about what he accomplished at the cross. Listen to what Peter said in Acts 2, verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. Now, what greater wickedness is there than crucifying the Son of God? What greater suffering can be endured than Jesus Christ taking the sins of the world upon himself and suffering in the place of the, of the people who committed those sins, suffering the wrath of God for them? Yet it was the Father's plan, and he brought about his intended purposes from it. If it's hard to imagine God ordaining suffering for you, consider how he ordained it for his son. If it's hard to imagine how God can bring about good from wickedness, consider what he accomplished by bringing salvation out of the cross. One of the major themes in scripture is that a great reversal is coming. Things on this earth are not as they should be as a result of the fall. Sin has entered the world, and with it has come death and suffering and pain and immorality 
injustice, oppression. Unbelieving, God-rejecting men seem to get ahead in this life through pride and greed and violence. While the lowly, the godly are exploited, but it will not always be this way. We see that in verses like Mark 10, verse 31. It says, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Luke 6, 21 says, blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Luke 6, 25 says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now, part of that great reversal is that Christians who suffer in this life will receive immeasurable glory in the next life. I want you to see how Jesus is our trailblazer in this great reversal. He humbled himself, stepping down into this great mess of ours with the sole purpose of suffering. Now I'm going to cite some verses, and I just want you to listen closely to how Jesus' suffering and his glory go hand in hand. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus appeared to two of his followers on the road to Emmaus, he said in Luke 24, verses 25 and 26, he said, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Philippians 2, 7 and 9, or 7 through 9, Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11 says, Of this salvation... The prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And just as Christ's suffering and glory go hand in hand, the same is true for us. He is our pattern. He is our example to follow. Now look at Romans 8. 17 and 18, including verse 18 this time. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And if you take Romans 8, 17, and 18 together, you're left with two certainties. First, for the Christian, suffering is guaranteed. And second, the greatness of the glory that results from our suffering is far richer than the pain of the suffering we endure in this life. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 has a similar encouragement. It says, for our light affliction which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I don't know where you're at personally. You may be going through something terrible that I've never experienced. So what I'm about to say could sound very arrogant and presumptuous, 
if it were just my opinion. But from Scripture, I've come to this conviction. It may be hard to fathom now, but God's Word promises that one day, whether in this life or the next, when you look back on your earthly suffering, you will praise Him for it. You will praise Him either because of the changes that He's wrought within you, or because you will see clearly how God orchestrated your suffering for your good, or because you'll enjoy the eternal glory your temporary earthly suffering has worked for you. The affliction in this life may be heavy, it might be overwhelming, but in the perspective of eternity, it will one day seem light and inconsequential. If not today, one day it will seem a wonderful thing to sow the seeds of momentary affliction and reap eternal glory to trade what is light and fleeting for what is heavy and everlasting. Now this teaching is abhorrent to the unbelieving world. The world understands glory and honor bestowed upon victors and conquerors and achievers. The world is ready to glorify the beautiful and the strong and the rich, but the destitute, the oppressed, the afflicted, you know, as is so often the case, this is an example of how God's economy and what the world values are completely opposed to each other. As I close, just let me give you an example or a glimpse into how things work in God's economy when it comes to suffering. Or you could say, let me show you what God values, which is radically different from what the world values. Hebrews chapter 11 is often referred to as the Hall of Faith, which is a play on words from the worldly phrase Hall of Fame. Now, Hebrews 11 doesn't um, lift up the, the fame and glory of, of uh, men and women from the Old Testament, but it does lift up and exalt their faith, which allowed them to overcome great hardships and enable them to do great things. And throughout the chapter, many individuals are named along with what their faith enabled them to do. But by the end of the chapter, the writer of Hebrews summarizes in this way. He says, Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Their suffering was not a sign of God's neglect or disdain for them. They suffered terrible persecution, and the perseverance of their faith was a testament to their surpassing value in God's eyes. The world considered them unworthy to live, God considers the unbelieving world unworthy to live among his faithful people. And that sort of enduring faith, faith that perseveres through intense suffering, faith that rejoices in trials, looking ahead to heavenly glory, faith that trusts in the goodness of God. Do you know what scripture says about that sort of faith? 1 Peter 1.7 says that faith is much more precious than gold. As we study these Verses, I hope that some amount of tension has been building in your minds. I've intentionally left something unsaid about these verses until now. And that is that these promises aren't for everyone. They are not. Look at verse 27. 
Who does the Spirit make intercession for? Every person? No. The Spirit makes intercession for the saints. And how do you know if you're a saint? Well, contrary to what the Catholic Church would teach, biblically, all believers are saints. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ and lived a perfectly righteous life? Do you believe that the Father placed upon him your sins and that he died in your place? Do you believe that he rose again the third day? Look at verse 28. For whom do all things work together for good? For everyone? No, this is a promise to those who are the called according to his purpose. Well, how do you know if that's true for you? How do you know if you're called? You don't. Don't concern yourself with trying to determine if you're called by God. What, that is God's side of the equation. But what is the human side of the equation in verse 28? Those who love God. Do you love him despite your circumstances? Do you love him when your prayers seem to go unanswered? Do you love him when people hate you, when you're forced to give up on a dream? Do you love him when you're sick? Do you love him when you're poor? If you're a believer, if you truly love God, it's my sincere hope that this sermon has helped equip you in some way to suffer well in this life. We are all tempted to think that God is far from us when we suffer, but the truth is, He's intimately involved with our affliction. He's there interceding for us. He's controlling every detail of our life to bring about his good purposes. And he's gone ahead of us, showing us the path of suffering that leads to glory. Well, please pray with me. Father God, I just pray that in some way this sermon might Help, Lord, if I don't know um, these people well. I just, uh, I know that trials are always either coming into our lives or, or maybe perhaps we're exiting a trial or there's a trial on the way. And so I just pray that uh, these things might be an encouragement. I pray that these scriptures I've shared would be remembered and, um, and that they would help, Lord, these people to suffer well and trust in you and your goodness even in, in severe affliction. I pray for these things in Jesus' name.